since we have only these three sessions together, I wanted to finish with a last look at leadership and manhood by doing a, I thought, let's do a biographical summary of one of the standout leaders in Scripture. And of course, my mind first went to Nehemiah, because that's who everybody goes to when you want to talk about leadership. But that's so common, it seemed like a cliche. And I thought of David, uh, who was, you know, the quintessential Old Testament leader, really. But I didn't think I could cover everything that we learn about leadership from the life of David in one session. And besides that, there's the issue of David's massive failure and the sin he committed with Bathsheba that culminated actually in the murder of her husband. And that alone would take several sessions to deal with. But was thinking about David, that got me thinking about the Bible's negative examples. And the Bible's full of them. In fact, it's a remarkable fact that Scripture never tries to paper over or deny the failures of heroic believers. No matter how egregious their failures, no matter how shocking their sins, if you read the catalog of champions in Hebrews 11, all men of great faith, men and women of great faith, all of them, but virtually all of them encountered huge potholes that caused them to stumble in the walk of their faith. And Scripture never tries to mitigate or camouflage their, their failures. In fact, those parts of the biblical narrative stand as warning beacons to us. They're there perfectly, pur- purposely. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written for our instruction. And so I was thinking about the value of negative examples, and that's where I decided to go for this session. I want to look at an Old Testament leader who is notable mostly for his failure as a man, as a father, as a leader. And uh, so let's talk about him, Eli. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And tonight we're going to look at the miserable end of the life of Eli, the priest. Eli was the high priest of Israel at the end of the era of the judges. They were all failures in one way or another. This was that checkered period of Israel's history when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So it was a time of backsliding and apostasy. And even some of the heroes of that era were deeply flawed, uh, including Samson and Jephthah, both of them judges prior to Eli. And the same thing goes with Eli. He was a believer and a priest and a judge over Israel But he was a man whose inconsistencies and failures ultimately marred his testimony and spoiled his legacy and brought his own family to ruin. His life is a tragic cautionary tale for us. Back in the late 1980s and 90s, actually before I ever began teaching adults at Grace Church, I spent a few years teaching in the junior boys division. And during those years, the curriculum took us repeatedly through surveys of 1 Samuel. I think we went through it every year. And, of course, in the junior division, you're more or less confined to the curriculum that they give you. And whoever wrote the curriculum we were using in those days covered the opening chapters of 1 Samuel without saying very much about Eli. Because the focus there is on the boy Samuel and how his mother prayed for him, and she dedicated him to God and made a little priest costume for him and and all of that. It's all very interesting for junior boys. But Eli, the old priest who trained Samuel, was sort of relegated to the background in the Sunday school curriculum, and it just didn't have a whole lot to say about him. He was, you know, mentioned as the high priest who took Samuel in and trained him And then when we studied the part where Samuel heard the voice of God in the night, you'd you'd get a little glimpse of Eli, enough to know that he wasn't the most discerning and godly high priest who ever held that office. But our focus in the junior division was always on Samuel, and very little was said about Eli. And I taught through that same curriculum, I don't know, two or three times during the years I was teaching in the junior division at Grace Church, and the pattern was always the same. One week we'd be talking about Samuel as a boy, and the next week we jumped right to the story of David as a boy. So we more or less skipped right over the end of Eli's life, and that's understandable because we're teaching 10-year-old boys, so 
they could relate to Samuel as a boy and David as a boy, but I also got the distinct impression that whoever wrote that Sunday school curriculum uh, really didn't want me to say a whole lot about Eli to the junior boys. And so I always had this itch to divert from, maybe this is why they took me out of the junior division. <laughs> I had this itch to divert from the curriculum and do a lesson on Eli because it is absolutely true that you can learn as much from a bad example, sometimes more, than you can from a good one. And that is Paul's view as well. The Apostle Paul, uh, there in 1 Corinthians 10, he uses the Israelites in the wilderness as a negative example, and he expressly tells the Corinthians, don't be like that. Don't put God to the test. Don't grumble. Don't be idolaters. Don't behave immorally. He goes through a list of their sins and says, don't do that. And then points out that all the Israelites in Moses' generation died in the wilderness because they did those things. And then that's where he says, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So all Scripture is profitable for reproof and teaching and correction and training in righteousness, including those parts that feature bad examples. And Eli is exactly the kind of bad example that stands as a warning to men in, in particular, leaders and fathers, and to me and many of you as well. His character flaws are precisely the besetting sins of our generation. And so let's see what lessons we can learn from the unsavory aspects of this old priest's character. Let me note at the outset that Eli was not a reprobate. Don't think of him as an unbeliever. He, he didn't revel in wickedness. He wasn't an enemy of righteousness. He was a redeemed man. He was a priest of the Most High God. And despite all of the various character flaws that we're about to talk about in Eli, bear in mind that he was at heart a righteous man whom the Lord had redeemed. And he fits in the same category of biblical characters as Lot and Samson, redeemed men who behaved badly. Such people are living reminders that God's elect do struggle with the habits and the tendencies of the flesh, and we need to keep up the battle against that. We are in Christ. We are new creatures. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new, but the fact is, and we all experience this, sin still clings to us. It's like Lazarus's grave clothes, you know? Even after he was raised from the dead, he had the, the, the clothing of death still on him. And Jesus had to say, loose him and let him go. Sin clings to us like that. Our flesh is still fallen flesh. And the, the promise of perfect Christ-likeness awaits its fulfillment when we see him and will be instantly transformed into his perfect likeness. But until then, and in the meantime, until the absolute bondage of sin is broken, the lure of sin still hasn't lost its barbs. And Christians who succumb to the enticements of the flesh do suffer sometimes appalling, scandalous, spiritual and personal defeat, which can lead to the worst kinds of personal catastrophe in life. And these men like this, Lot and Samson and Eli, all suffered earthly ruin in, on their way to heavenly glory. They're examples to us of the, uh, of, of the negative traits, the things we need to watch out for. But in, ter- in, in eternity, they too will be trophies of divine grace, examples of God who saves sinful men. And the stories of these men remind us what I said this morning, that our justification rests on Christ and his work and his perfection. Redemption, my redemption, in no sense depends on my own perfection because I don't have any perfection. But if I'm truly redeemed, I am going to love righteousness. And in fact, I think it's intriguing that of these men I've named, Samuel is in Hebrews 11 as an example of faith. Lot, Scripture tells us in the New Testament, hated the unrighteousness of Sodom. I don't know why he was drawn to that place, but Scripture says his righteous soul was vexed by all of that. And Eli loved righteousness. He just didn't have the the courage and the willingness to fight to actually protect it. I exchanged several emails a few years ago, more than a decade ago, with a man in the Middle East. He was a believer 
living in a country where Christians are in a small minority. And this guy was constantly racked by doubts about his salvation. Every time he sinned, and even some of the most petty kinds of sin, he would beat himself up with doubts about whether he was really saved. And it would sometimes plunge him into depression that lasted for weeks at a time. And he described all of this to me by email, and he wanted to know whether I believed he had good reason to doubt his salvation or not. And my answer was, yes, I doubt your salvation too. But what concerned me was not the fact that he sinned. It was his utter failure to believe the promises of God. He was obsessed with his own miserable performance and yet he seemed oblivious to the comforts of divine grace. He couldn't seem to lay hold of the truth that it's Christ's righteousness that saves us, and that's a sufficient ground for justification. And our own righteousness is and always will be as worthless and useless as manure and as defiled and worthless as a filthy pile of used bandages. So my reply to him was that, If he wouldn't believe the promises of God and rest in Christ as his Savior, he couldn't be saved. Much less could he expect to find true peace and settled assurance by constantly evaluating his own works. Anyone who thinks he can possibly be good enough to deserve God's grace doesn't really understand what grace is, doesn't understand the first thing about the gospel. Romans 4.5 reminds us that God justifies the ungodly. 2 Peter 2.8 refers to Lot, that miserable, lifelong compromiser, as that righteous man. Calls him righteous. Hebrews 11.32 lists Samson and Jephthah among the heroes of the faith. And Eli was worthless as a priest and a failure as a father. And he let the grossest kinds of evil abide in his own household, but Eli himself seems to have been a believer. He was slow to hear, but he knew the voice of the Lord when he heard it, and he didn't resist or try to defend himself when God pronounced judgment on his own household. He simply said, it's the Lord, let him do what seems to him to be good. He was a miserable example and a poor leader, But during a time when everyone in Israel was doing what was right in his own eyes, he maintained the sacrificial system and kept the tabernacle open. And Scripture says he judged Israel for 40 years. So the Bible portrays him as a believer and a redeemed man, although he is set forth for us clearly as a negative example, like Lot and Samson and that generation of Israelites who perished in the wilderness He's not someone we should emulate. And even Solomon, who was blessed with supernatural wisdom, you know, made a wreck of his own life and legacy by indulging in sin. So it shouldn't surprise us that there are examples like that in the Bible. Everyone in heaven will be there solely because of the grace of God. No one gets to heaven by being good. And so trusting in your own goodness will actually lead you to hell for all the reasons I gave this morning. Jesus said he came not to redeem the righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Now, I don't bring all of that up to try to offer you any kind of encouragement if you're reveling in sin. But it ought to be an encouragement to those who hate sin and fight against it, and yet they find themselves like Paul in Romans 7, constantly fighting the same battles with the same sins, over and over again. And also, I want to confess to you that looking at the lives of men like Lot and Samson and Eli is convicting to me personally. One thing that kept echoing in my mind as I studied this passage on Eli is that I actually suffer from many of the same character flaws that utterly debilitated him. As I said, a list of his character flaws would read like a catalog of the present generation's besetting sins. We're all, I warn you, all of us are going to relate to Eli. He's the patron saint of spiritual couch potatoes. And the tragedy that played itself out in his life ought to sound a shrill warning to all of us who are prone to be lazy and spiritually apathetic, Because his whole life is a reminder to us that when we tolerate sin in our lives, we expose ourselves to the Lord's discipline. 
and he will discipline those whom he loves. Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And that, I would say, is the central application of tonight's lesson. So bear it in mind as we look at the life of Eli. Now, I want to look at three telling episodes in Eli's life. And each of these reveals a serious character flaw. And it was character flaws like these that ultimately led to his undoing. So for those of you who are taking notes, here are three character flaws that we'll see in Eli's behavior, and I had to make them alliterated, incompetence, indifference, and indolence. And I'll go over these. So episode one, we're going to see how Eli's incompetence made him a failure as a priest, as a spiritual leader. We're talking about spiritual incompetence here. You see it in Eli's own willful dereliction of his priestly duties, his utter incompetence as a spiritual leader and a shepherd of God's flock. It's evident from the first time we meet him. So turn to 1 Samuel 1. We'll just launch into the story. 1 Samuel 1. This chapter focuses mainly, of course, on Hannah and her prayer for a son. And Scripture introduces us to Eli almost in passing. So to set the context, remember that this story took place as the era of the judges is drawing to a close. God is about to institute the monarchy. The tabernacle is permanently pitched at Shiloh. And since the tabernacle is now a a permanent and stable feature there, Scripture occasionally refers to it as the temple. And in fact, verse 9 in 1 Samuel 1 is the very earliest use of the word temple in Scripture, it says, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Now, Eli himself is mentioned for the first time in verse 3, which says, Now this man, Elkanah, that's Hannah's husband, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. So, When we first meet Eli, he is an old enough man to have two grown sons who are also serving as priests. And and they have to be some of the worst priests in the history of the priesthood. We'll talk about that more about that later. But here is Eli in the patriarchal role, sitting in a seat of authority near the post of the tabernacle. And he's there, verse 9, when Hannah comes to pray for a son. Now, Hannah, according to verse 10, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, if you know the story of Samson, you'll know that's familiar. That's a familiar scenario that she probably learned from the story of Samson, who came a little earlier. Hannah's prayer echoes the same prayer that Samson's mother prayed. She is, in essence, promising God that if if the Lord will grant her a son, she will devote that child to the Lord with a Nazarite vow or, or something very similar to a Nazarite vow for all of his life. She undoubtedly knew the story of Samson, and she's following the example of Samson's mom. And this is not a passionless prayer. She is deeply distressed and wept bitterly, it says in verse 10. The King James Version translates that expression this way. She was in bitterness of soul. But rather than allowing a root of bitterness to make her bitter, she put these afflictions to good use and she let her suffering drive her to pray. It helps to understand that in this culture, childlessness carried a particular stigma that was deemed a a sign of the Lord's displeasure if you couldn't have children or if you didn't have children. And in, in Hannah's case, it was an especially bitter fortune because her husband had two wives. And people always ask about this, so I'll say it. God did not sanction polygamy even in the Old Testament. God's plan for from the beginning was for a man to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two of them shall be one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24, and it sets the standard for one man, one wife, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, even before Adam fell. And all of those who practiced polygamy in the Old Testament 
they always reaped the bitter fruit of that sin, including Abraham and Jacob and and David and Solomon and just about everyone else about whom it is recorded they had more than one wife. It always caused problems. So the Old Testament records for us the fact of polygamous marriages, but don't get the idea that God ever sanctioned those marriages. In Elkanah's case, his two wives gave occasion for strife in the household. Even though he loved Hannah, her her childlessness gave her a significant disadvantage in this polygamous relationship. She became the lesser of the two wives, even though he loved her, actually. But for all of these reasons, she desperately wanted a child. Now, you remember the prayer of Rebecca in Genesis 31, give me children or I die, she prayed. Hannah's prayer is more modest than that. She doesn't pray for children. She prays for one son. She begs God for a child, a son, one who would be fit to be a servant in the tabernacle, and she promises that if God would give her a son, she would give him back to God, verse 11. So her desire, this is intense, it's agonizing, and in fact, this unfulfilled longing for a son is what caused the bitterness of soul that's described in verse 10. She knelt there in the tabernacle and prayed and poured out her soul before the Lord, verse 15. But with all the turmoil that was going on inside of her, she prayed silently, verse 13. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. So she knew that the Lord knew her heart, and despite how she must have felt like crying out, she purposely kept this prayer secret, prayed it in secret, so that no one else would hear but God. And although she's in a public place, she kept this prayer between her and the Lord, not like those New Testament Pharisees who prayed in order to be seen by other people. Her business was with God and with God alone, and he was the only one she cared about. But notice Eli's response. He sees her there. He's the priest charged with overseeing the tabernacle. He sits on a seat of authority by a post, probably in a corner where he could both see who came and went and and also observe what's going on inside the tabernacle. He's an old man now, and he's functioning more like a Walmart greeter than a high priest. And he's appropriated the trappings of spiritual leadership without any of the dignity of that role. And his incompetence is seen in his failure to differentiate between someone who merely sits in the seat of authority and the priest who is a true shepherd. And from this perch that he had made for himself, Eli had a clear view of Hannah. Verse 12 says he observed her mouth, meaning he's watching her lips move. Verse 13 says only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And look what he did. And this is appalling, really. He rebukes her. Another lousy counselor, Dr. Street. Wish you could have trained him. Verse 14, Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, also notice there's no no suggestion that he moved away from his seat or came and whispered this rebuke in her ear in order to keep it private. The impression you get is that from this seat at the doorpost, he barks this rebuke at her like a megalomaniac hall monitor at a junior high school. And that was not only rude, it's horribly insensitive and, from a priestly perspective, incompetent. It's the same accusation the unbelieving mob made against the apostles on the day of Pentecost, isn't it? The fact that he would assume the worst about a woman like Hannah shows how shockingly devoid of discernment Eli was. Drunkenness usually makes people loud and and boisterous, noisy. Hannah is silent and keeping to herself. There's absolutely no valid reason for him to rebuke her. And in fact, as a priest, it was his duty to show her compassion. Hebrews 5, verses 1 and 2 says that the high priest is a man rather than an angel or some kind of heavenly being, precisely so that he can have empathy with those who come to worship. Every high priest 
chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin, so that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. That's what the book of Hebrews says. So Eli's rebuke of Hannah is a complete failure of his duty as a priest, his chief duty as a priest. And it may well be that Eli was accustomed to seeing drunken women at the door of the tabernacle, because that would fit what we know about the sinful practices of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, which we'll see in a moment. But in light of the way Eli's sons ran the tabernacle, it's no wonder, really, that Eli mistook Hannah for a licentious woman. Such was the low spiritual climate of that time that Eli acted as if he'd never actually seen a godly woman come to the tabernacle and pray silently. So he completely misjudges her. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Eli, the priest, didn't even seem to recognize silent prayer when he saw it, which suggests to me that he was probably lax in his own private prayer life. And if anything is a sign of incompetence in a priest, it's a lackadaisical prayer life. If Eli's own praying had been what it should be, you can be certain he would not have been so quick to condemn someone in their private devotion to God. But he didn't even recognize Hannah's praying for what it was. There seems to be a pattern of this sort of thing with Eli, and we won't go into it in detail, but uh, most of you will remember the story of how God spoke to the young boy Samuel when Eli was sleeping in the room next to him, and the voice of the Lord came to Samuel, you know, three times, and it was apparently an audible voice, and Samuel thought Eli was the one calling him, and so he went into where the old priest was sleeping and woke him up, and it was not until the third time God spoke that Eli realized this is the voice of God speaking to Samuel. And so he told him to go back, lie down, and when the voice came again, he was supposed to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's 1 Samuel 3, verse 9. And if you read that account, it's it's very clear that Eli himself simply rolled over and went back to sleep. You know that because when God spoke to Samuel, the message included a prophecy of judgment against the house of Eli, and Eli had to be told about it the next day. So he's sleeping while God is speaking to this little boy in his presence. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm a priest and I realize in the night that the audible voice of God is speaking to someone in my house, I'd wake up and listen or want to. But Eli was content content just to go back to bed and fall right to sleep, almost as if he was annoyed by the interruption. He's utterly incompetent as a priest. So now let's turn to episode two, and we'll see how Eli's indifference made him a failure as a father. This is a sad episode. First Samuel 2 reveals that the spiritual state of things in the tabernacle had sunk to ghastly and unprecedented depths. This is further evidence of Eli's stunning incompetence as a priest. But notice, too, how appallingly indifferent he is as a parent. And I'm simply going to read the account of 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 36. And you are going to be appalled at the behavior of Hophni and Phinehas, his sons. These are a couple of unbelievably wicked thugs. They acted like they were mafia dons whose territory was the tabernacle. But what I want to call your attention to as I read this passage, yeah, they're bad kids and you're going to be shocked by that. But don't miss Eli's utter abdication of his priestly and parental roles. It's clear that he had been sinfully tolerant of his own son's misbehavior for many years. He had permitted them to indulge in all kinds of flagrant mischief without fear of rebuke. They had to- He had tolerated their their diabolical behavior for so long that now they just brazenly, in his presence apparently, bullied and intimidated worshipers. They openly indulged in all kinds of fleshly sins, and they blasphemously took for themselves offerings that were meant for God, apparently without any fear that their dad or anyone else would seriously challenge them. Eli 
sits by passively with all of this going on. He scolds poor Hannah the first time he sees her praying in the tabernacle, but his own sons had abused the priestly office for years without a single word of rebuke from him. So look at it here. Chapter 2, verse 22 indicates that it was not until Eli was very old, after hearing countless reports of his son's villainy, that he finally challenged them. And then it's about the weakest imaginable admonition. This is this is really unbelievable, inexcusable indifference from someone who is supposed to be a man of God. Look at this episode. I'm reading selected verses from 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 36. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. So clearly they're unbelievers. Worthless isn't really strong enough to do the Hebrew word there much justice. The King James Version translates it literally. They were sons of Belial. That's what the Hebrew expression means, sons of the devil. And it's significant that Scripture expressly tells us they did not know the Lord. That's never said of Eli, because with all his faults and character flaws, he did know the Lord. But notice how emphatically Scripture states that Hophni and Phinehas were utter reprobates. Among all of the unsavory characters we meet in Scripture, these were two of the worst. They were cynical, they were deliberately wicked, they were unbridled in their personal pursuit of self-gratification, and they were also just plain mean-spirited. Verse 13, the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, I need to pause here and say there was no biblical warrant for this practice. It, it had evidently become a custom while the tabernacle was there in Shiloh, but in effect, it was like robbing the worshipers, and more importantly, robbing God of offerings that were given to him. There was a provision in the Old Testament for the priests to partake of certain sacrifices, not all of them, but certain ones, and that's how they were supported. But this was not the means God prescribed for them to do it. They're, they're taking advantage of their position in a sinful and blasphemous way. And look, it gets worse, verse 15. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So it's clear what's going on, and they're resorting to intimidation to steal what the people were offering to God, which is an act of wanton blasphemy against God himself, the worst sort of corruption. And it had penetrated right into the household of the high priest. These are his sons. But still it gets worse. Look down at verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. So in effect, they're offering a they're, they're operating a kind of brothel at the entrance to the tabernacle, turning the, the temple of the Lord actually into a, a place of the grossest kind of sin. Matthew Henry says this about that. He says, To have gone to the harlot's houses, the common prostitutes, would have been abominable wickedness. But to use the interest which as priests they had in those women that had devout dispositions and were religiously inclined, and to bring them to commit their wickedness was such a horrid impiety as one can scarcely think it possible that men who called themselves priests should ever be guilty of this. And then Matthew Henry says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and tremble, O earth. No words can sufficiently express the villainy of such practices as these. And, and I agree with that. I can't really think of much that you could do that would be worse but Eli's response is pathetically lame. Look at verse 23. He said to them, Why do you do such things? For 
I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. People are talking about this. You've got to cut it out. That's the idea. He's worried about what people are saying. He's not worried about, about the sin itself. Talk about a weak response. And he goes on to say, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And so clearly he recognizes the gravity of their sin. And he's hinting, perhaps, that his son's wickedness is such that it might even be unforgivable. Who are you going to get to intercede for you to seek forgiveness for this sin? He clearly understands the the need for atonement and an intercessor, and he knows that no human intercessor would ever be adequate to plead the cause of people who committed such wickedness, even if they were to repent. In other words, he has correctly, Eli has correctly assessed the theological dilemma of his own son's wickedness. Everything he said in that little speech was true, but it's not enough. These sons deserved more than a strong rebuke. Eli is the high priest. It's his responsibility to guard the purity of worship in the Lord's house. And at the very least, he needed to remove these boys off of their, out of their office and banish them from the temple. There may have even been grounds to stone them for a, a, a sacrilege like this. But Eli was much too tolerant as a father. And his response here strongly suggests that it was partly, if not mostly, his fault that Hophni and Phinehas had grown up to be so wicked in the first place. He was a careless father. He didn't give them the kind of nurture and discipline that they needed. Notice what verse 25 says, starting in the middle of the verse. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. In other words, God had already sovereignly determined he was going to judge them for their sins. And so, because they had hardened their hearts, the Lord sealed that hardness in their hearts against their father's rebuke. He did what Romans 1 says he will do with those who fall in love with their own wickedness. He he gave them over to the sin that they loved and allowed them to reap the full consequences of what they had sowed. Verse 27 says, A man of God came to Eli and prophesied the doom of his entire household, And he told Eli that his sons would die because of the evil that they had done. So skip down to verse 34. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. So it's a very specific prophecy. That, by the way, is exactly what happened also. Not only did Hophni and Phinehas both die on that same day, but Eli himself died that day as well. Uh, And it was perhaps the most sorrowful day in the history of Old Testament Israel. It was that infamous battle where the Philistines uh, stole the Ark of God. The Israelites took the Ark as if it was a good luck charm into battle, as if God were a genie in that box who would magically assure victory. 1 Samuel 4.4 says it was Hophni and Phinehas themselves who carried the Ark into the camp of battle which was a foolish and superstitious thing to do, and it resulted in doom and calamity all around that lasted for years. Not only were the Israelites defeated, but Hophni and Phinehas both died on that same day, and before the day was finished, Eli would be dead as well. And all of those tragic consequences are directly traceable back to Eli's failure as a parent. If he had not been so indifferent when his sons began to abuse the privileges of the priesthood, the seeds of national catastrophe would never have been sown. And that brings us to episode three in the life of Eli, where we'll see how Eli's indolence made him a failure as a person. Indolence, I chose that word because obviously it's alliterated. It's just a synonym for laziness. Think about the nature of Eli's character flaws. He was incompetent as a priest and indifferent as a parent. Both of those involve a kind of apathetic passivity. You get the feeling that he was a slothful, idle man, like I said, a a spiritual couch potato. And in fact, have you noticed that in the episodes we've looked at, Scripture specifically mentions his physical posture. 
he is always either seated or sleeping. Eli is never once portrayed as a man of action in any of the biblical references to him. He was a lazy man. As I pointed out earlier, he's the kind of person who could roll back over and go to sleep, even when he knew God was there and speaking with an audible voice. Eli was the kind of man who loved the seat of authority, but not the duties that came with it. And that pathological addiction to indolence played a role in his death. Episode 3 brings us to that account of how Eli died. This is after that disastrous battle when the Philistines captured the ark. Hophni and Phinehas were killed in the battle, and a messenger returns to Shiloh with the bad news that Israel's been defeated, the priest's sons are both dead, and the Philistines captured the ark of the Lord. 1 Samuel 4.12, a man from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God... Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. So here is Eli at the end of his life. He's an old man, so you wouldn't expect him to, and he's also legally blind, so you wouldn't expect him to be out fighting in the battle. But as is characteristic of Eli, he is seated. He is fat and feeble and typically idle sitting at the city gate, which is a place that symbolized authority. He seems always to like the trappings of leadership, especially sitting in the seat of authority. But he's not a leader. He doesn't take the responsibilities of leadership very seriously. And the mental picture this gives is disturbing. An old man here is pompously seated in the public place of respect And yet he's totally neglecting virtually all of the actual duties of his office. A man who is morally lazy, physically inactive, emotionally indifferent to all the gross wickedness of his own degenerate sons. And even more disturbing than all of that is Eli's sheer incorrigible spiritual apathy. He has utterly lost or bartered away whatever spiritual passion he might have once had. He is not a spiritual man much less the kind of spiritual leader Israel needed at an hour like this. And I think there's a kind of poetic justice in the way he died. If he had not been so inactive all his life, he might well have avoided some of the calamity that overtook him at the end. If he had disciplined his own sons instead of tolerating their insolence and their blasphemy, the spiritual state of the whole nation probably would have been markedly different. If he himself had done more in the temple, taken a role of of spiritual leadership instead of merely sitting idle in the seat of authority, the spiritual climate in and around the tabernacle might have not been so bleak, but he was lazy and, and irresponsible, and God judged his whole household for it. Never again after this was any descendant of Eli's ever in the high priestly role. Never again did the ark of the Lord return to Shiloh. You might recall that Phineas's wife bore a premature son as a result of all of this trauma, and as she lay dying from the complications of childbirth, she named the child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. The glory did depart from Shiloh, and When the ark was finally returned to the tabernacle, it was years later when the tabernacle was resting on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The ark had always been the 
in the tribe of Ephraim. Now it's transferred to the tribe of Judah. And God wrote Ichabod on the entire tribe of Ephraim and the city of Shiloh and the household of Eli. Shiloh, the city, dwindled to nothing. And generations later, when the Lord prophesied against Jerusalem and the tribe of Judah, he reminded them of this tragic day in Israel's history. Jeremiah 7, verses 12 through 15 says this, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast all of your kinsmen and all the offspring of Ephraim. So Eli's character flaws had tragic and far-reaching consequences. It affected the city of Shiloh, it affected the entire tribe of Ephraim, and all of this is a reminder that whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And if we tolerate sin in our lives, God will discipline us severely. We need to remember that as men. I started by emphasizing the fact that Eli was a redeemed man. I want to close by pointing out that he wasn't utterly devoid of spiritual fruit. In each of the three episodes we've seen, there's evidence of grace in Eli's heart alongside these glaring spiritual character flaws. For example, when he wrongly rebuked Hannah, thinking that she was drunk, he he then listened to her explanation and humbly added his amen to her prayer. Matthew Henry wrote this, Eli gave Hannah a kind and a kind and fatherly benediction, verse 17. He did not, as many are apt to do in such a case, take it for an affront to have his mistake rectified and to be convinced of his error, nor did it put him out of humor. But on the contrary, he now encouraged Hannah's devotions as much as before he had discountenanced them. He not only intimated that he was satisfied of her innocency by those words, go in peace, but also being a high priest as having one authority, He blessed her in the name of the Lord. So there's a a little glimpse of grace in his life. 1 Samuel 1.17, then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And in the second episode we, we looked at, when Eli's sons are defiling the tabernacle with their promiscuous behavior, uh, you know, basically sinning with women and stealing the Lord's sacrifices, it's true that his response as a father is weak and ineffectual, but nonetheless, you can see in his words that his soul abhorred the sins that his own sons were engaging in. And at this point, he seems very much like Lot, whose righteous soul was vexed by the sin of Sodom, but not sufficiently vexed so as to move him to take decisive action. But his hatred of this sin is a a little bit of evidence of a righteous heart. And then in the third episode, when you see Eli sitting by the gate of the city, Scripture tells us again that his soul is agitated out of fear specifically for the ark. Notice that the news that caused him so much shock that he fell and died was not the news about his son's death. He knew that was coming, and he also probably knew that it was appropriate. But the news that the ark was captured is what reviled him and shocked him so much that he fell over. Think about this. Surely Eli, like any father, would be devastated with the news that two of his sons had died in one day. Even a couple of wicked boys like Hophni and Phinehas. This is devastating news. You know, David was devastated when Absalom died, despite the grief, all the grief that Absalom had caused him in his life. Eli no doubt felt that same kind of fatherly grief for his sons. But to Eli, the more shocking news, the more disturbing fact by far was the news that the ark of God had fallen into the hands of pagan enemies. That's what caused him to fall back with such force that he snapped his neck in the fall. And in all of that, you can easily detect Eli's true love for the Lord. And and to me, that's really what's significant in this story. 
it's not enough to have a love for righteousness and feel like you you genuinely love the Lord if you don't also serve him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's the true expression of love for God. You can feel the emotion and be sympathetic with the righteousness, but if you're not an agent of righteousness yourself, if you don't hate evil in your own life, you're not the kind of man God wants you to be. And that's true of Eli. He wasn't. How tragic it is that he permitted his character flaws to color his life so that these character flaws are what stand out when we study the story of him. And what a sobering reminder this is to all of us. I confess to you that when I study a life like this, I am brought face to face with my own character flaws and reminded that any life not lived in utter dependence on the grace of God has the potential to turn out this way. Even the life of a minister or a priest, and we all have the potential of allowing our our proneness to sin to begin to dominate and color our character. We have to wage war against that constantly. And we desperately need the grace of God to keep from becoming like Eli. And all of us ought to tremble at the thought that that's even possible. All of us ought to turn to God and plead for his grace to keep us from that kind of spiritual calamity. And let's do that right now. Lord, we know from bitter experience that we are weak, we are susceptible to the sins of the flesh, sins of the mind, sins of indifference, sins of gross disobedience even. Eli asked the right question, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And your word gives us the answer to that question. Christ, who is both God and man, can intercede for us. His righteousness is the all-sufficient ground for our justification. We confess that. We confess that we contribute nothing to our own redemption because we have nothing to contribute. All we can do is thank you for your grace and ask that you give us more grace to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this ungodly world. And may our lives glorify Christ as we seek to become Christ-like men, we pray in his name. Amen.